word this morning, and it looks like I'm going to take up every minute today on Pilgrim's Progress. So good morning. Thank you. Just waiting for my greeting. Thank you. This is week three of Pilgrim's Progress. And this is th- uh, week three of five weeks that we've been given to review Pilgrim's Progress. I will say that from this point on, things are going to move a little faster through the book. I was watching my pace, and then I realized that we'll be done in March if I don't keep moving on. If there's things in, that we pass by and parts that your favorite, one part you love and we missed it, you just have to read the book. We're just going to hit the important parts. So in week one, we talked about the book and uh, the, its author, John Bunyan, and we did mention that it's an allegory of the Christian life. And uh, when John Bunyan wrote the book, I don't know that he realized how popular it would be. I mentioned it was the second most popular published book in the English language. Every generation f- finds resonance with the, the common themes of the Christian life that Bunyan wrote about. Uh, it is an allegory, and Bunyan himself, in a way, is mixed into the story. This is part of his testimony. Some of the characters that you meet, if, if you read about Bunyan, you find that some of these are characters that he knew in his life. It's not everybody's exact same story, but uh, we resonate when we see the struggles that he's in. Uh, we also, in week one, talked about... Um, where Pilgrim starts with a book in his hand and a burden on his back. And this is the picture of the Word of God bringing conviction of sin. And he feels the weight begin to, to bear on him. And he begins to feel this need to, uh, to move and get out. He begins to panic. And he ends up leaving the town, the city of destruction. A man named Evangelist, which represents a pastor, meets him and directs him in few side paths to the wicket gate, which is the, the way of salvation, the small gate. And we left last week where he, he's made it through the, the gate. He, he, in a sense, he's become a believer. He's gone to the interpreter's house and learned some very important lessons of what a young Christian needs to know, that you're brought into the church. You, uh, you are to rank yourself under. There are people that are in charge over you. And you need to take uh, advantage of those blessings in your life in the church. And there's also warnings. Bunyan was a clear Calvinist. He believed in the perseverance of the saint, saints. But he does leave us with these warnings that if you don't continue in the faith, you were never in the faith. And so he sees these warnings in the interpreter's house. And he begins to... Oh, and he also sees this... A picture of what uh, the Christian life is about in, in when you have tribulations and the fire in the wall and what happens in the believer's life when God is pumping grace in and, and yet uh, this is all part of God's plan for the Christian life. So here we are. He's, the odd thing about that is even as he's become saved, he still has the burden on his back. And this is a kind of a story of where Bunyan himself was uh, even though he felt like he was saved, he still carried this weight of sin that uh, kind of still dogged him that he needed help with. And 
We ended last week with him coming to the cross and contemplating the cross, and that is where his burden finally falls off, and it rolls down into the sepulcher, and he is set free. And so that's where we start today. Uh, we're going to hit four main four themes, more, four topics. We're going to talk about his, the new life, the hill of difficulty, then the house, beautiful. And then finally, Apollyon and the valley of death, which is a pretty exciting part of the book. So the first part here will be the burden lifted and a new life begun. Maybe you remember when you came to Christ, what it was like before, and you, you compare yourself of uh, the things you used to do and the things you don't do now, the things that you hated then and now the things that you love now, uh, there's a change. So uh, immediately at that point, the burden drops, but then these three angels show up, three shining ones, and they give him several, four things. I think I have it in your handout. One, they announce to him, your sins are forgiven. And I wanted that to set in just a minute. I don't want to run past that. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, what cross Christ did on the cross, his bearing our sin, the atonement uh, was for us. Uh, Galatians 3.13 said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so in, in the atonement, there's Christ on the cross, uh, the perfect life lived, Amen? Perfect life lived that is credited to your account, and our sin is taken on by Him. And so this, this great exchange is the second thing that's pictured by the angels. He goes to Christian and takes off his, one of them takes off his tattered clothing, and he gives them new clothes, brand new, fresh clothes. Uh, I don't know about you, when I was growing up, my mom would take us once a year for school clothes. Everything else had to last all year long. But then we got the new clothes every year. It was kind of a, a fun thing. Uh, so here he is, a new life in Christ. He's given these new garments. This pictures, really for us, the doctrine of justification. This is to the concept of being declared, declared righteous. This is what the angels are doing for him. And I've got a word here for you. It's, uh, part of that is called double imputation. So if you want to write that down, double imputation, if you don't know what that means, is, is we impute to Christ, he takes on our sin, and on the other side of that, he imputes to us the perfect life lived. So this is really two sides of the same, same coin. Uh, I know my favorite verse right now is 2 Corinthians 5.21, for it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there are these two transactions, this double imputation going on at the same time. And the third thing they do is they give him a mark. They mark his head. This is sort of like a seal, like you would read in Ephesians 1, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Um, I also remember that scene in Ezekiel chapter 9. I don't know if you remember, the judgment is coming to the Israelites, and he has an angel go around, and he starts to mark their foreheads. This one, this one, this one, this one. These are the ones that are repentant, are mourning over their sin, uh, hold back judgment from those people. And I wonder if Bunyan had that in mind as well. So he has the mark on his forehead, and then he's given a very precious scroll for him. It's a scroll that has a list of God's promises, and it has a seal on it, and it is his, um, 
It's what he's going to present. When he makes it to the end, to the celestial city, he's got to have his documents with him. You might consider it like if we had our passports. And if you've been traveling around, never lose your passport, by the way. They want to know who you are and, and how to get in and how to get out. In a sense, this is Christian's passport to the celestial city. And I guess you consider it more of a, for the believer, it's, it's our covenantal assurance that, that we are part of his family and we have, uh, we're citizens of heaven. And this is our document from the king that allows us entrance in. And so here he is. He's leaping for joy. Finally, this burden is off his back. He's giving the seal. He's giving uh, his papers and his marching orders. He's supposed to stay on the, the straight path. It's narrow and straight. Uh, how could it be any harder than that? And there he goes. Uh, he's excited. But very quickly, we, we come into groups of people that are going to challenge him. And the first group of people, he's, he comes across three men who are lying down and they're sleeping. And these appear to be pilgrims. He's all excited. He's got no burden. He's excited to go. And here are these three people, and they're sleeping. One of them is called Simple. The other one is called Sloth and Presumption. And like all of Pilgrim's Progress, all these words have meaning. The simple-minded, I think Bunyan has in mind here, uh, those who would fill their mind with anything that comes along, not determined to do anything, but just to remain simple. There's no desire to grow in your Christian life. The next one is sloth, and this is just laziness. You know, I don't want to get up and read my Bible today. I got other things that I want to go and do. This is uh, slothful and and a desire to grow. And then there's presumption, and this is the kind of... We used to call, when I was young, we used to call this fire insurance. Anybody heard the term there, what that means? (laughs) People that were just there, you got, you think you've been saved and you're going to avoid hell. That's all you really wanted to know. Now I want to live my life the way that I want to live. And now that I know I have my fire insurance, I'm okay. This would be sort of presumption, presuming that he's already part of the kingdom. When in fact, the only real way to know is, is there fruit? growing in your life, right? These men are three are fast asleep. Proverbs 132, uh, there's so, so many verses about these characters, but 132 says, for the waywardness of the simple ones will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them, uh, both physically and spiritually. Uh, Christian offers to help them. He's excited. He said, get up, wake up. He's shaking them and trying to get them roused. And they won't have any of it. Christian knows enough now to that this is a real. There's real warnings from Scripture about being uh, lazy and not concerned about where you are. Um, and he he's where there's a roaring lion that's in the area, and you don't want to find him. Uh, their feet are already locked in fetters, so in a sense they are bound, and they don't seem to realize or seem to care. And he has this discussion with them trying to convince them differently. First Thessalonians 5, if you'd like to turn with me there, we really don't want to get too far from the scriptures as we go through. But I think this is the lesson that Bunyan would have us remember. First Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 6, say, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night... Or of darkness. 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For your notes, you can put alert and sober if you'd like. I, I, I kind of listed alert and perseverance. To persevere, uh, that's an essential part of the Christian life. Uh, we have an enemy, and we have the world, and we have a really lazy flesh. Uh, if you don't know that already, we have to rouse it up and stay alert. But they saw no danger. They, they went back to sleep. And what you found out later in book two, which is the story of his wife Christiana's story, they come and find these three men, and they're still bound, but they're not alive. They are now corpses. Uh, they really did not heed any message. So Christian is disappointed, but he's moving on. And as he's going, especially at the beginning here, there's two walls on each side as he leaves the interpreter's house and leaves the cross. And there's two men that come jumping over the rails, in a sense, climbing over the wall. Their names are formality and hypocrisy. Uh, these two men, in a sense, are violating uh, the rules, in a sense. Imagine yourself at a sports venue, like we can go to sports venues anymore, uh, and buying a ticket and getting through the turnstile, and somebody jumps over the rail, comes up to you and says, hey, where are you sitting? <laughs> You're like, get away from me. Uh, this is kind of the picture of these two men that have jumped over the wall and Christian recognizes there's something wrong here. You guys are not coming in at the gate. You're not coming in in the way the Lord of the path has designed. Formality uh, represents religious, a religious performer. A religious performer. Second uh, Timothy 3.5 says that, that kind of describes this character, uh, that he is a, has a form of godliness but denies its power. In other words, there's an outside appearance that things look good. Inwardly, there's no desire for, for Christ. It's just sort of a legalistic outlook. I think many people think Bunyan had in mind the, probably the Anglican church. Uh, remember at the time, if you didn't join a church, you were an Anglican. <laughs> you automatically were part of the Church of England. This is, you didn't go through any testimony of who, what your faith was like, you, you were just part of that and became uh, involved in just remembering prayers and lighting candles and, and saying certain things. But it was all just a formal, outward-looking um, sort of faith. So uh, people think that's what formality was all about. But he did at least think that he's, what he's doing is trying to get him in a sense, the legal is trying to somehow perform things to make himself right before God. The other is hypocrisy, and he is actively deceiving others. The way he acts uh, at the church is dramatically different than he is at home, and the way he is at work. His language is different. You would imagine he's a different man, and he is a hypocrite, in a sense. Um, also, uh, it goes on to say, I think uh, Wayne Mack in his, in his uh, Christian Life Issues, along with this book, makes the point in the conversation that he's begun to even deceive himself. <laughs> he's said this for so long that he's starting to believe his own message. Uh, both of these gentlemen are together. They come from the same town, and they're re relying on a long-standing tradition. Uh, but uh, Christian is telling them, you guys need to come at the beginning and start over. 
And they were saying, no, 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 this is the way we've done this for generations, thousands of years we've come this way. And by the way, we're in the way just like you are. What's the big fuss, right? We're all headed the right direction. And Christian is continuing to warn them. He, he, bring, he, he brings up a reference to John chapter 10, verse 1, where Christ is warning uh, the people. He says, he who doesn't enter by the door but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. He said, do you want to be considered a thief and a robber when you get to, to uh, the gates of the celestial city? And they seem to not care about this. There are uh, four other things that he, three other things he wants to tell them. One, you've not entered the gate. Two, you don't have a mark on your forehead. Three, you don't have a scroll. How will you get into the celestial city? And still, they would not be convinced. You do it your way, we're going to do it our way. They, were, they, had, a, they had no desire to listen to godly counsel, which, by the way, is a mark. They will not listen to godly counsel. Instead, they listen to themselves. 2 Timothy 3.5 goes on to tell us that not only should you... Um, these people have a form, but no power. But it also says, don't hang around with these people. Don't even associate with this kind of people. And Christian does. He separates himself. He kind of, in a sense, gives up and he walks on. He doesn't want to listen to their counsel or their arguments. So this is the where they're, they're both headed the same direction. And they come to number the second area. This is the hill of difficulty. This hill of difficulty is part of the path. At the foot of it, it has three um, separate roads. One is straight and narrow, but it goes very steep. It goes straight up. The other two paths go around it where the hill of difficulty, the main straight and narrow path, looks hard. The two other paths look easy, and they look level. And, but he knows he knows enough that he's supposed to stay on the, first, on the first path, the narrow and straight. The other two, uh, the first, excuse me, the first uh, road that goes off one direction is called a danger. Formalist takes that path. The third way is called cause destruction, and hypocrisy takes that one. And it says that you never hear from them again. They are lost, it says, to rise no more. So that was a short, short trip. Uh, at the foot of the hill of difficulty, there is a spring at the bottom. And I thought this was very interesting. I, I know part of my story, and I know some of your stories, that when we are faced with tribulation and trouble, we go up this hill in our life. This is a picture of, of a hard time in your Christian life. And sometimes you look back and you recognize that during that time, God was preparing you. He was girding you up. And you can look back, and I've heard this testimony before, that God was preparing me for what he knew I would go through. And sometimes you don't know that until you look backwards. And you say, yeah, there was a spring of water there before we had to go through a hard time. It is designed. It is there for a purpose it's a path that we all have to walk through. Uh, a Christian starts to run up the hill, and then it gets steeper. He starts to walk, and eventually he's down to crawling up the hill of difficulty. And he is 
getting tuckered out. But fortunately, the, the lord of the, of the road, the prince, has created a, a, an arbor that's off to the side, a place to rest. Right? This sounds great. And he's so happy. He goes and he sits down there and he rests. If you've ever been on a long hike, y'all know what that's like. You just want to, ah, oh, let's just rest a minute. This is really steep. And he enjoys it and enjoys it <laughs> and enjoys it. And finally, he starts to fall asleep. And it says that he took a long, long, he allowed himself to fall asleep for a long time. And this is a not good thing. Do you remember, he's just been trying to counsel the three guys that were asleep at the beginning, right? Y'all get up, get up, wake up, don't go to sleep. What does he do? He falls asleep. And it kind of reminds me, probably you, of the times where we've wagged our finger, counseled others, and then we find ourselves probably sometimes in the same sin that we're pointing at others. Well, hypocrisy is a common thing uh, in our life. Not that we shouldn't warn our brother, but we also warn ourselves. So he falls asleep. He's sleeping, and this voice comes out in his dream that says, from Proverbs 6, 6, Look to the ant, O sluggard, observe his ways, and be wise. And with that, he jumps up, he wakes up, and he realizes, oh my goodness, the sun is starting to set. And he begins to run. He's realizing it's late. He runs to the top of the hill. He gets to the top, um, and he remembers, oh, he sees two men. The sun's going down, but he sees two men running towards him. This is like the third group of people. And they are running. They look like pilgrims. They're dressed as pilgrims, but they're going the wrong direction. They're not going the, the path to the celestial city. They're running backwards. And their names are timorous and mistrust. Timorous, you can think of timidity or, or fearfulness. And mistrust, uh, you can imagine, is faithless, not trusting in God's promises, finding himself uh, fearful as well. But, but they're together, and they're both afraid and they're running back in there uh, Christian is asking them what are you what's going on why are you guys going the wrong way he said well uh, their quote here is the farther we go the more danger we meet and now we've just seen two lions running around and we don't want any of that and they're they're running backwards and Christian begins to reason with them go back to what you're going back to the city of destruction where there's for sure death, there's no hope there. Uh, no, he, he argues with them and then to himself that there is no hope there. Do I go back where there's no hope or do I go forward where there could be possible hope? Because <laughs> he's not thinking very good things either about the two lions. And he reasons that, no, I need to go forward. And then he, he reaches into his pocket and he looks for his scroll because this is where he pulls out his promises of God that I'm going to make it and he's going to make sure I make it and, and he doesn't have it. Like, doesn't know where it is. Uh, have you ever been in a, in a place where you've been somewhere and you're always looking for your passport? And I've been to Uganda, I'm always like, at different places, I'm like, I just want to make sure I have it. Oh, there it is. <laughs> or I know where it is. Uh, so here's that, that panic moment. We're like, where is it? And he begins to think that. He starts to double back, and he remembers he fell asleep at the arbor. Yes, right, I pulled it out to read it. And so he runs back. And he looks and searches frantically, and he finds it. And he is so excited that he found the scroll. 
all the while now berating himself that he was doing the very same thing these three guys were falling asleep were doing and he's reminding himself just like the Israelites wandered in the wilderness here I am going now three times down this path that I could have only gone once and I think there's a message here for all of us about staying fervent on our Christian walk uh, I know that if you've been in the walk very long in the Christian life, you'll look back and you'll say, I wasn't really growing very quickly there. There was a real lull. felt like I was just kind of wandering around in the wilderness before I got my desires straight and God spurs us forward. I think this is what ben, Benyon would have us remember. So he finds this girl. He, he runs to the back to the hill and he, he sees over the top, he's tired, the two lions, but he also sees... A beautiful house, beautiful palatial house, and uh, it looks like to him, and he's correct, that it's built for just a kind of pilgrim that he is, uh, that's weary, that needs a good rest, a good place set right along the path for him. But there's these two lions out in front, and they are roaming about. They look rather hungry. He doesn't really want... So he's stopped in his path, and he doesn't know really how to manage this. The two lions are here, and there's a house there. And then we go to part three, and that is the palace beautiful. The palace beautiful is a picture of... Do we know? The church, yeah. It's the picture of the church. You think about Bunyan's own personal life. Bunyan... Uh, if you remember, was separated from the fellowship, right? He's, he's thrown in jail and for different periods of time. And while people can come and visit him, imagine what that's like to be in jail for six years and be separated from the fellowship and the singing and the rejoicing and then to get out and then get put back in again. Uh, you, you can tell Bunyan had a, a wonderful love for the church and then eventually he became pastor of that church when the uh, former pastor passed away. But it's just a, a reminder, the beautifulness of the church. Do you love the church? Calvin is mentioned as saying, uh, he's in the Christ, Calvin Institutes, he, he writes, one cannot have God as his father who doesn't have the church as his mother. You heard this before? If you don't have God as your father, and you don't have the church as your mother because they are connected. You love the church. My daughter's church up in Indiana one time had its bumper sticker. And they would put it on the, their cars and it said, all it said was, love your mother. <laughs> and then it had a picture, it had the church sitting there. And I know everybody was kind of looking, kind of scratching their head. What is this? What are you talking about? I love my mom, that sort of thing. But it brought up conversation about how our affections are as we think of it. Maybe you've been on vacation, or maybe during this pandemic you've been away for a while. Isn't it a joy to come back and to worship together? Until something's taken away from you, you don't realize how precious it is. But there's the two lions uh, standing in between him and the house beautiful. Uh, some people believe these two lions may have represented, really, what's whatever would keep you from attending church, any kind of persecution, uh, or any people that would keep you from going to church and celebrating. At that time, it likely was the Church of England that was putting more and more restrictions on 
the, the Baptist and the Puritan independent churches. They kept adding one more regulation, and they ended up basically telling you can't even meet unless you have a curtain. Uh, then they it went to more strict rules. You have to go five miles out of town, and they would walk five miles out of town. They kept trying to figure out ways until finally they, they actually put him in jail. So the other lion very well could represent the state. King Charles at the time was also working to limit uh, Christian liberty, and we see this kind of persecution around the world, maybe here at some point. But you can see that really any kind of persecution against the church that would prevent you from being there or try to scare you away or uh, from being a part of the fellowship could fit. Maybe if you have a family and you have children, maybe it's just trying to get to church this morning. I can remember having small kids and this the challenge, you know, that uh, just trying to get everyone loaded up. What happens at 8 a.m.? I have no idea. Every Sunday morning, it was just really hard. There was something keeping us from going. But there's a man outside who sees Christians stuck here in this predicament. His name is Watchful. Watchful is a porter of the house. He sees that Christian has stopped, and he has two things he wants him to know. Number one, this is a test. He tells them, you're in a test, whether, you know, how strong is your faith? And number two, the lions are chained. They're only able to go so far. They will not hurt you. If you stay exactly on the path, they will not harm you. And he needs to know both of these things. And he takes the step, and he's able to walk right past the lines. It's so dark, and he feels so foolish that he slept. If he hadn't been so lethargic and waited, uh, he could have gotten here during the day, and he could have seen the chains. But now, because of his own sinfulness and his error, he has found himself in this position. But he makes it past the lion. And he tells, uh, the watch, watchful asks him, why are you here? Where are you going? And uh, he's asking him what he's there for. He said, I'm a pilgrim, and I'd love, if, you, if I can, take me in, and, and if I could lodge here for the night. And watchful doesn't say yes. He says, I, I need to call a, a maiden of the house to come in and check this out. And her name is Discretion. I think this is very interesting. Discretion comes to check out Pilgrim, and she doesn't say, hey, come on in, take a rest, kick your shoes off, there's a warm fire here. She comes with a very serious-looking face, and it's quite full of questions like, who are you again? What is your testimony? Do you really in the way? And, and he gives them his story. He tells them, kind of rehashes where he is, and that his name, you find out, used to be not Christian, used to be graceless, and now he's been changed. Now he's, his name is Christian in this allegory, and she lets him in. But this is a real interesting change, what we see in our culture today. You know, I, I mean, just come on in. You want to be a member? Oh, it's fine. Come on. Come on in. Uh, but not of a, of a godly Christian church. They, they, we should have this... this um, discernment on who we let in the body and are you going to cause any trouble I have to tell you this story when I was in Austin going to school let me tell you that I was not the Christian that you would want to meet I would have very little advice for you of anything of importance but I do remember going and visiting a church in Austin and 
as usual, you fill out a card, you give them your number, and these two members, elders, came to visit my house. They knocked on the door and they said, can we come in? I said, sure. And I'm ready for the spiel. Our church has this ministry and we have this children's ministry and they came in and were asking us about our faith and what we believed. And I was pretty opinionated at the time of what I thought church ought to be like, <laughs> wrongly. And I can remember them looking at me and saying, you know, we don't think our church is for you. You could have slapped me upside the head. I just could not imagine what's going on here. And they said, in fact, there's a couple of churches that you might be interested in. Thank you for your time. You know, I think back about that. I, my respect for those men grow every year, that they had discernment, that this guy could be causing some trouble if he's coming in with his own ideas. I think I would have turned myself away, by the way. But that, those faces, I can still see it today. This is what Bunyan uh, expects and, and is encouraging us to think about with a healthy church. What kind of disunity or person are, are you coming into our church? Do you really are in the faith? Not that we are going to turn anybody, don't leave here and turn somebody away that's coming in. We're, really, you're talking about membership, who we allow in as members. Three other ladies there are, there are piety, prudence, and charity or love. They're all aspects of Christian characters, and Christian is admitted. He is allowed to come in, in fact, with rejoicing, with great smiles, and the whole house, lights come on, and he comes in, and they had this great time of feasting and rejoicing, and he spends several days there. It's a picture of the peace that we find in the church, of the unity that you find in the church. There's food, there's drink, a sweet fellowship, and it's filled with testimonies of the things that they've been through. In fact, you get a re recap of pretty much all of Pilgrim's progress as he tells them all the trials that he's been through and what was going through his mind. That He's asked about his family and why aren't they with you, and he, you get more of an insight as to his efforts to convince them to come with him on the journey, but they, they refused. There, you see the function of the church. He is, in a sense, equipped and uh, in armor, but also in the scriptures. He's trained in being taught uh, what the Word of God is. He goes to this museum and sees these artifacts. You know, this is the jawbone that Samson used and uh, all these different stories that the museum has. And he begins to get rooted in the Word of God, what the church is about, what the mission's about, what the goal is. And he becomes, uh, takes several steps in maturity which in a sense is the role of the church, right? We talked about in week one about discipleship and how this is, this is what the church is involved in and causing us to grow more like him. Uh, at the end of his days, he is taken to a balcony and he is shown what is called the delectable mountains. We're going to see that later. The de delectable mountains is going to represent those times when you're very near to God, whether because of some trial your own personal study, but those moments when you just sense the nearness of God, it's like heaven is only a step away, kind of the, the delectable mountains, and you can see them from the house beautiful if you look a certain direction. He's got a long way to go to get there, but it's hope. It's In a sense, he's setting this picture of the future for him. Uh, hopeful, hopefulness is something the Christian needs to have. At the end, 
according to Ephesians 6, this is the, the section where you're talking about the armor of God. They literally put armor on him. He is suited with an armor, breastplate, shoes, a shield, and a helmet. And I wanted to read just this part of Ephesians just to remind us at least how it starts. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that, this is the purpose statement I wanted you to remember, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You have an enemy that's out. You need armor. And here you go. And so they, they fit him up. And it's time for him to leave. He's, he's excited about being there, but he's also excited about moving on down the path. They don't just um, slap him on the back and say, have a nice trip. They, they have provisions for him. And if you remember, they came up the hill of difficulty. This house beautiful is on a high place. Now they're going to go down. And this hill is called the hill of humiliation, of humbling uh, it's very interesting that, uh, in a sense, prudence, uh, piety, and charity are going to walk with him. They're going to help him all the way down as he's being humbled. And if you read about this section, there's a lot been written about the, the need for us to break down pride. How many of us have a pride issue? <laughs> I'm going to wait till every hand goes up. Okay, okay. We all have a pride issue. If you don't think you have a pride issue... You really have a pride issue, okay? That's the way humility works. As soon as you say you have it, you lost it, right? It's the other side of pride. It's that sin that is somewhat of the ugliest, and it tends to grow constantly. I've sometimes described it uh, in the spring with weeds that continue to grow, you know? They're just always growing. It's just a matter of when you tend to notice them. And the longer you don't notice them, the more of a mess it becomes, uh, weeding out pride. God will do it for you if you don't see it in yourself. And in one sense, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of an idea of self-reliance. It's easy when we compare ourselves to others. At least I'm better than that guy, and your pride seems to be okay. But when we compare ourselves to the King of Kings and His righteousness, and then all of a sudden we begin to really begin to understand the depths of our pride and how humble and dependent we need to be this is part of every believer's life. And what's really neat about this is the church walks with you through that. In fact, if the church is doing its job and your friends are friends, they gently remind you that things aren't coming out quite right. Uh, I've been corrected many times. I hope you have. Uh, we need that kind of correcting and humbling. And I think it's sweet that they walk him with him. And he slips a few times and they make it to the bottom. And there they, they send him on his next step. And that is, number four, which is the greatest battle scene, I think, in the book, is the battle with Apollyon in the Valley of Death. Well, if you have boys, this is where they sit up at, you know, and they listen really carefully of what's happening. This is the fun part. I loved reading about this part. Apollyon in the Valley of Death. In Revelation 9-11, Apollyon is a name used in the Greek to refer to Satan himself. And um, Ephesians 6.10 was a reminder to us that we need to prepare for him because he is active. Uh, he's uh, working to, against us. And it's a real test of courage for Christian. 
and he, is, uh, he does have his armor. So Polyon, this, this great beast is described as like a dragon with scales. He comes out and meets um, Christian just as he's, he's left the hill. He's still now ascend, descending into this valley, and there's this confrontation. Christian wants to run. His first inst- instinct is to run, but he recognizes something really interesting. The armor that he has is only forward armor. He's got nothing behind him. If I turn, I'm really going to be in a mess. So he realizes he's got to stand forward. He needs to have what is an essential Christian characteristic. Courage. Courage. I I can't help but uh, have his turn, if you could, to Revelation. Chapter 21. I'd like for you to see this. This is a verse that haunts me, by the way. I come back to it several times. Here in Revelation chapter, seven, uh, chapter 21, verse 7 and 8, you learn who is it that makes it to heaven and who is it that will be in hell. Verse 7 says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So the overcomer, you're thinking swords and armor, the overcomer will make it to heaven. But look at verse 8. Look at the people who will be in hell. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, and murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake of, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Did you catch the first description? The first one is cowardly. That hits Ken a little bit. I understand the immorality and the lying. I understand the law. Cowardly? Has there been a misprint in my Bible? Maybe I got it translated incorrectly. Courage is a common Christian trait God expects us to have in the Christian life. There there will be no cowards in heaven. Uh, I'm a coward frequently when I don't want to say things and do things. God expects expects us to be courageous. I, I keep coming back to that verse on occasion because fear, I think, is something that we all recognize. But if your faith is set in Christ and your future hope is in Him and His Holy Spirit is with you and you have His Word, then you really have all that you need. And He's taking care of all the biggest problem that you had, your sin problem. He expects us to be courageous. So Polyon goes on the offense and he attacks uh, first with his words, verbally, spiritually, he attacks Christian. First, he, he starts to challenge his identity. And he, he's telling him that you're my subject. You've been my subject. I've been your ruler. I rule the city of destruction where you're from, and you're supposed to be serving me. And so he hits on who he is, and he answers, Christian answers, that now I'm in Christ. I was under you, but now I've left you. I'm under a better prince now, a better kingdom now. And your rewards were, were, uh, were terrible, and I was in tatters. Here I have all the promises of eternal life. And so Apollyon then charges him, reminding him of his past failures. All of the sins that he's committed in the past, and why he did them, and what was going on in his mind. And he, he begins to just challenge him on all these things. And it's interesting, Christian's response was that he didn't say none of those are true. 
He actually said, it's worse than you're saying. <laughs> you haven't had the half of it. There's much more that you're not mentioning. <laughs> it's worse than what you're saying. But, praise the Lord, the prince has taken away all of that for me, and he's happy to take my sin. When he mentions the name of Christ, this sets Apollyon off. When he mentions the name of the prince, I'm going to read just a section from Cheryl Ford's book. This inevitable conflict, uh, I've received a pardon from my prince, and suddenly Apollyon erupted in fierce rage, shrieking, I am an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and, mark this, his people. I have come out with this purpose, to stop you. I hope you're thinking of Lord of the Rings here, by the way. I think about this battle scenes. Apollyon, beware of what you do, warned Christian, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, you had better watch yourself. And in a sense, he's telling Apollyon, you're not in the city of destruction. You're on the king's highway. By the way, you're trespassing here, by the way. It didn't go real well. He didn't, he didn't like, Apollyon didn't like that. So Apollyon spread himself out in such a way as to cover the entire width of the way, and he challenged, I am without fear in this matter. Prepare to die, for I swear by my infernal dwelling that you shall go no farther. I will destroy your soul right here. And at that, he threw an arrow directly at Christian's heart and Christian puts up a, seal, a shield. So here we start this long, it says it's an hours of battle, half the day they're fighting, uh, and he learns something I think is very important that I pointed out. When you become a believer, you become part of a larger conflict. There's no passive observers in the Christian life. Christ has an enemy. It is Satan and those who work with him. We also have the world in the flesh, but we when you become in Christ, you, in a sense, take on his enemies, right? And so maybe you don't realize that. I am the last one to think about this. Uh, and I've told some of you, I'll, I'll go through something. And the last thing I think about is spiritual warfare. And I look back and I think, oh, yeah, that could be going on right now. Uh, we need to be alert in this thing. And the scriptures would tell us to do that. So this fight goes on. Uh, finally, Christian runs out of strength, and Apollyon jumps on top of him, and you think that he has lost the day, and he's ready for the final blow, and as Christian would describe it, he, he receives some kind of strength and help. If you remember, uh, I guess the Lord of the Rings, you remember Sam Gamgee and the spider? Anyone remember that part? He's fighting. I wonder if, he, if Tolkien got that from this. Uh, he lays on, he throws, he can't reach his sword, and it looks like he's done for. And then he finally is able to reach it, and he plunges Apollyon with a, a, a mortal wound, and it sets him back. And it says that uh, Christian doesn't run. In fact, he goes hacking at him. He goes running at him in a very, uh, very great courage and shouting out, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And so you see this ferocious, your boys will love this, uh, running after the dragon, and he, he flees the scene. He runs away. Uh, during the battle, he's quoting Scripture, much like Christ would do, and uh, he finds strength from it. And so he makes it through that battle. Immediately, as soon as that's over with, 
He is given uh, some leaves of healing. He's uh, given some food. You're not really sure who does that. Just these hands come, it says, and gives him this refreshment, and he gets strength again because he is not given any relief. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. He's in the valley of death. This is where Apollyon just left him, and he's left there to go through this valley, and it's now dark. And I think there's an important lesson here that Bunyan would have us remember that sometimes trials come not in isolated spurts. They seem to come one after another. I don't know if y'all have been there where you're thinking, how long, Lord, will this last? This just seems chapter 2 of the same story. I feel like I'm in chapter 11 now. How long is this going to keep going? And Bunyan leaves Christian here to fight the next thing, and that is the valley of death. It's a, it's a very dark place uh, in the Christian life uh, where it seems there seems hopelessness. Uh, you struggle for help. Um, it's that point where you feel like you're kind of at the end. You've had your battles. You felt like you've sung your sword, and now you're just kind of tired of it all. <laughs> and yet, he still takes up his courage. Uh, there's a deep ditch on one side of the valley that he realizes if he slips, he won't come up out of that. On the other side, there's a mire, and he has to walk this narrow path in the darkness, literally putting his foot out each time to make sure he's going and he's not falling off. Um, he's feeling hopeless, both physically and spiritually. He's tired. Uh, during this time, by, he has terrors at night by what he hears. He hears goblins screaming. He sees, excuse me, goblins and satyrs and dragons. At one point, even the pit of hell opens up. It's spewing fumes. You can smell the sulfur and the cries uh, by sounds. There's, there's howls and shrieks. And then he hears these blasphemies that he hears coming, uh, denying Christ and charging things against him. And he, he can't tell if the voices are his or it's a demonic influence. He gets very confused. And it says in the book that somewhat of a goblin sneaks up behind him and starts whispering in his ear all these things in such a way that Christian thinks these are his thoughts. And he, again, begins to condemn himself. This is just that kind of spiritual warfare maybe you've experienced where these thoughts come and, and you don't want them, but they're there. And you wonder, if it's, is it me? It's the world? Is this a spiritual? But he realizes that uh, he, he cannot use his sword anymore because he's, he's, it's too wobbly. He can't carry it around. He, he sheathes it, and he relies on his weapon called all prayer. <laughs> this is all he has left. I don't know if you've been there where you feel like all you have left is to cry out to the Lord, God, I am done. Help. And he continues to repeat that phrase as he's walking through the valley of death. And he makes it. He makes it. And then the, the light starts to fade. And, excuse me, the darkness starts to fade. The light starts to come in. And he begins to see where he is. He looks back and he sees the path that he's is chosen. Uh, he's taken and he sees the dangers to the left and the right that he, some of the things that he uh, experienced, some of the things he avoided, uh, but that God had got him through it. He was rejoicing. Now, as the, the night is lifting, he hears another voice and he, and he hears it. It's like another pilgrim. 
And he's saying things like, uh, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And he's thinking, that, that must be another pilgrim. Or am I being confused? And he starts to look around, and as the, the light comes, he sees another man ahead of him. Another pilgrim. And he's so excited. And you find out his name is Faithful. And it's the joy of finding another brother or a saint that comes alongside you during the dark times. And you've made it out, but you need another companion. This is the, the joy of what we find in the, in the Christian life where we're not left to walk alone. We're given the church, but we're also given very close friends that help us walk through the hard times. And we see those associated with the church so faithful. We're going to pick up next time and learn about him. Um, just as a, a recap, we want to remember what Christ accomplished on the cross, especially now as we celebrate his incarnation and this double imputation of what Christ has done, taking away our sin and giving us his righteousness. There's also the, the, the lesson of being on the alert that we have spiritual enemies, we have the world in our own flesh that pulls us down, and we can't be uh, lethargic. We have to keep on alert for our own heart. Uh, the third point was just cherish the church, love the people of the church, uh, enjoy the fellowship we have and the one another's that you give and that you receive, and be a part. And maybe you haven't been as integrated as you have been you want to do more. We hope this next year you'll find yourself committing in a deeper way in the fellowship and the ministry of the church. And just a re reminder, when you take on the name Christian, you also have enemies with you as well. Wendell, do we have anything? Okay. So next week, uh, we're going to talk about Vanity Fair and a giant. That should be fun. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for just the, the messages of your word, of your encouragement in the scriptures that you give us. Thank you that uh, this pastor has written us an encouraging book of how to fight and how to be on the alert. Uh, and it's the beauty of the church and the one another's that we get to participate with in. Lord, thank you, Father, that you've not left us alone, that you've put us in a body. And Lord, we also are thankful that you are with us, that you have an enemy, that we have an enemy, but in covenant, uh, our enemies are also yours. <laughs> so we thank you, Lord, that you love us that much. And I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as now we go into worship, as we study your word together, and we just rejoice as we think about Christ's coming. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.